Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is the second part of our conversation with Craig Blomberg. We'll be talking about what the Bible really says about gender, equality, and race. And you'll hear a conversation with our regular attenders of Brew Theology in Denver. If you want to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org, on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. We also want to give a shout out to some of our supporters, Mark Donato, who is a patron of ours on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast and the work of Brew Theology, you can also become a patron on Patreon. If you have any questions, just reach out and let us know. So let's continue with our conversation with Craig Blomberg. Thank you, Craig, for uh, the presentation and the slides, the time that you had spent getting all this ready for us. Can you give us a title of your book? So if those want to look it up on Amazon, this is just one chapter of 10. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And we still believe in God. Okay, and when's that going to come out? Supposedly June. That's what they keep saying about a lot of things. <laughs> That's why I said supposedly. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's see, we got, we got questions in here. I'm going to try to go through these the best I can. And I think what we'll do is to get different voices in here. We're going to have, I'm just going to call on you with your, with, so that you can speak and so I don't speak for you. So you can reword your question if needed as well. And it looks like, so how about this too? If, uh, if you're not speaking, let's, let's silence the mics as well. And then we'll have, whoever is talking and then Craig unmuted. I think I have the first question, if I'm not mistaken. Well, even before that, uh, somebody was asking me on the side about the H word, not hell, although that would be a good topic too. Uh, But we used it earlier. It's hermeneutics. (laughs) So could you briefly just define that word and when people use hermeneutical and hermeneutics? Principles of interpretation. Okay. So how we approach the text, interpret it in context. Now we have, I'm seeing, okay. Yeah. As far as questions go. Yeah. I think mine is the first one. So you talked about, and this was in the context of, I believe women submitting to their husbands and, and use the word about honoring Christ. So uh, that could mean a lot of things to a lot of people, depending on their, their church background and their theology, uh, what would it mean to honor Christ uh, with that? Because I, a lot of people will just use the word like Jesus and Christ and amen and all that. And it just sounds kind of cliche. So what, what is it, what is it to honor Christ? Uh, not to do anything that uh, would uh, go against uh, his teaching uh, from the gospels or uh his teaching from his followers in in the rest of the New Testament, but that which is loving and good and wholesome and uplifting. Um, What uh, in Galatians, uh, Paul calls the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So in that sense, Hank, you have a follow-up to that beyond just the word, Christ. So Hank, do you want to just, I don't want to decipher what, what you're asking here, but I'll let you go for it. Well, Christ is the idea of all humanity 
and it probably goes beyond that to all, all living beings. And to honor Christ is to honor all of all humanity, because Jesus as a body was really kind of a symbol of all humanity. I'm, I'm using the term uh, as the New Testament uses it as another name or title, uh, the Messiah, for the, the person of Jesus. And it's certainly true that in the history of religion, people have taken the term Christ and and expanded it in, in lots of other ways, including as you have, but but I'm using it more narrowly to refer to uh, the, the person of Jesus, uh, the first century Jew who, who came from Nazareth. So I'm curious too, that with that, you know, Richard Rohr, as you're well aware, uh, ta- speaks and writes about the universal Christ. That's probably a, a rabbit trail hole that we could hold off for another night. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I don't, I don't want to go down that one because uh, we probably could for a long time and that would take us off uh, of the conversation and topic at point. And just to let you all know, we are on Facebook Live, so whatever you say, others can't hear outside of us, FYI. will be used against you. All right, so I, actually, I, I'm going to follow up with my – it's okay. You can follow up with your own questions too here. So in honoring Christ in these ways in which, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you with uh, what he would be referring to as the Messiah within the first century, the rabbi, the sage that walked in Galilee and Jerusalem and, and, and beyond. With, with this particular figure, this Christ figure, this Jesus, this man, the first century, how much of the, the Torah would be carried with him so that's just, you know, his followers would be honoring that which he claims as well, because that's... I know that's a loaded question. It seems to me that first century Christians be, are getting divisive about what it means to honor Christ because what it means to follow Christ looks different for different tribes yeah. of Christianity. Yeah. Um, so I'm just kind of curious about what it means for Jesus to carry the weight, the yoke of Torah in, into the first century and into the 21st century. That's, well, that's the place the place where he talks the most clearly about that and and in the most detail is in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five and uh, in verse seventeen he says uh, don't think that I've come to abolish the law oh, okay so there's there's going to be continuity there but then he says I haven't come to abolish it but to fulfill it which is an interesting word. We, we usually talk about predictions being fulfilled. We don't talk about laws being fulfilled. Um, and then he goes on and he gives six examples of some pretty fundamental laws like murder and adultery and divorce and hating your enemy. And he says, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you, and then he comes up with a pretty radical reinterpretation of those laws. So there's certainly discontinuity as well as, as continuity. And I don't, I don't think there's a simplistic formula. You have to ask, well, what, what topic are you talking about? Are you talking about uh, still keeping a, a kosher table? Jesus said something pretty specific to that, that uh, it's uh, what comes out of the body, not what goes in that defiles a person. Be talking about still going to the temple and offering animal sacrifices? Well, no, Christians from the very beginning believed that, that Jesus was the, the once-for-all sacrifice for, for human sins. Other areas become a little more complicated, and you have to 
put together the sum total of what Jesus said on a topic and, and figure it out. Yeah, no, thanks. That's, that's good. I, I had a colleague and, and even a mentor at one point of mine who said, WWJD is, uh, is not good enough. You know, what would Jesus do? It's really, what did Jesus do? And then the question then becomes, what would he do today? And that's, that's the tricky part. So let's move on to, I think Janelle, you have the next question here about the middle ground. So go for it. So I was just going to ask you, you presented the complementarian and egalitarian as finding a middle ground, but my I guess my question is, how do we find a middle ground with people that deny the right of women to preach and lead fully, especially when the loud voices are very clear that women are not welcome and include telling women like Beth Moore, go home? How do we answer the fierce denial from those voices like John Piper? I, I totally get that there are lots of people in the middle, but especially online, like, yeah. I don't even get in those fights, and I've been a minister for 20 years because it's you. so, like, violent almost. Well, the one, the one good thing is, uh, and I'm sure you can find some exceptions to this, but the people you're thinking of, John Piper, and you alluded to John MacArthur and his comment about Beth Moore, are men in their 70s and 80s, and... Uh, they're not going to live forever, and you <laughs> do not see, and again, I know there are exceptions to this. I'm yeah. not denying that, but in general, you just don't see the number of people like that among millennials. Okay. Um, so I think there really is hope for a coming generation. I, I compare my women's students today and they are very grateful for their four mothers uh, in the faith who fought some of the battles and had to be tough and had to hang in there. And they're just glad that they don't have to do that for the most part. Now, sure, they're not going to go to Piper's or MacArthur's churches, but there are opportunities for them. And every year more are coming online and use that metaphor. so I, it's slow. It's frustratingly slow, but I think I think we're making progress. You're and you're seeing that in your students and their attitudes as well. Absolutely. Cool. Thank yeah. you. My first question was an answer to to Janelle's question. Um, my question is, why should we find a middle ground? Don't have to, but um, the extremes tend to just keep polarizing people and. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So when it's possible, I I look for ways to bring as many people uh, together as possible. Rob, do you want to continue? On- oh, my next question was in, was in response to, um, to what Craig was saying about Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. I found that all those sermons, everything I've read and heard about Solomon, about Sodom and Gomorrah is a pure misrepresentation of scripture because Ezekiel plainly says that Sodom's um, besetting sin was being haughty toward the poor. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any contradiction there. Um, the uh, chapters in Genesis are, there's no misinterpretation. They're very clear about the, the sexual sin. And again, it wasn't just homosexual, it was heterosexual as well. And Ezekiel doesn't say anything like their only sin or their true sin. It just says 
yeah, they, uh, they were arrogant in their wealth and they didn't care about the poor. Um, I don't see anything that's uh, mutually contradictory about those two statements. Uh, in our world today, there are, there are people who hold to lots of things at the same time um, that are good or bad or somewhere in between. So, so Sodom and Gomorrah was kind of like modern capitalism then. <laughs> um, let's see, this is live, right? Yeah, you might say that. <laughs> it's a little allegorizing. <laughs> Hank, now that we have you here, you've got a, a statement here about complementarianism. Uh, do you want to put this as a, pose this as a question to Dr. Blomberg? I know, I know it's it's more of a statement, but... Well, I'll pose it. I'll try to pose it as a question. Yep. I would say, is there any possible way that we could possibly support the idea of, of complementarianism in today's secular world and in today's, today's modern religious world, for that matter? Great question. There was a man who for many years was uh, a very um, well-liked uh, Christian leader by the name of John Stott. He uh, never married. He saw his calling from early on uh, to give his life uh, full-time uh, for ministry. He pastored a large church in London, but then for the last 30 or 40 years of his life, he traveled and he spoke and he taught and he wrote. And he is someone who I have heard both complementarians and egalitarians claim as one of their own, which is rather remarkable. Um, he wrote a book uh, on ethics. The first edition was in the 70s. Another edition came out 20 years later. It's still in print. And he talks about team leadership in the church and he says women should be in all possible roles but if you have to designate someone as a team leader well maybe that's a man and and that was 40 plus years ago and i found it interesting that whether somebody likes that model or not um, it was somebody looking for middle ground, and there were people on all sides of the issue that said, if we could, if we could even just agree on that much and get rid of all the other strident approaches, how much better the world would be. Is that still an option in the 2020s? Maybe not. I don't know. But I, I always think it's at least worth asking the question. Is there a way to at least move to the middle? The Ku Klux Klan is not what it once was. It still exists. Um, somebody put on the chat things, should, should Christians, should conservative Christians have, have supported Black Lives Matter? Absolutely, in my opinion. We did not make the progress we thought we made a few decades ago, but the Klan is not what it was and, and White supremacy still exists, but not nearly on as widespread a scale as it once did. And that's been hard, tough slogging. 
but it's worth it's worth still going after it and and trying to get rid of the the extremes in my opinion well i think we can have women presidents we can have women football players we can have women football coaches i agree um, we do we do have women uh high level women uh, sports coaches on men's teams but you know nevertheless you know only women can have babies so so complementarianism is in a way it's kind of baked into our biology so we have to we have to recognize that but now but then we can no. go ahead and re, you know elect a, a female president sure why not yeah i agree and and uh, of course, as somebody reminded me when I said your exact words a couple of years ago now, um, with gender assignment change, uh, I guess it's not just women who can have babies. <laughs> but that's another whole topic. So staying on topic, let's go down to... <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> let's go down to Jeff Gelber's question here. So Jeff, you have two Hi, questions thanks. here. Yeah. Um, girls. Well, they're very interrelated. Um, so I kind of was thinking about the title of your book in relation to what you were talking about today. And um, a little bit of my broad knowledge of um, conservative as well as not so conservative Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of conservative Christians, um, to one degree or another, hold that the Bible is not just the opinion of you know, some random guys in the first century right. or even before that, um, but the inspired word of God um, to one, to, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. Mm -hmm. And so I, I used a couple of examples here, like one of the most, um, you know, one of the most shocking is where Paul says something like women will be saved in childbirth. So <laughs> do we take that or do we take what he said in Romans about the, you know, means of salvation? Um, and, and so, but I mean, but I mean, kind of throughout your presentation, you talked about this like sort of cultural understanding. And I think what people maybe even people outside of Christianity struggle so much with is, if you say this is the word of God, and God has existed forever, and has a set standard that isn't changed yep. by, you know, 20 years ago, and now 20 years later, then why do you have these statements about slavery right. being pseudo-acceptable, or, you know, women being saved in childbirth because the woman sinned first and then deceived the man or blah, 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 blah. It's no, happened. great question. A lot of people, including uh, inside the church as well as outside the church, uh, think that if I say in some way uh, these books come from God, that that means, oh, well, I just take them all at the most straightforward level of meaning and they apply the same way in every place and every time. And no Christian who's thought seriously about the question has ever held that view. Um, the general sense has been that there has been a progress. Um, people talk about the expression progressive revelation. If you think God was behind it, there were things that certain ancient cultures couldn't hear in ways that later cultures could hear 
Um, I don't know if anybody, uh, well, I better not say that with some of the wackos that are doing mm -hmm. stuff during the coronavirus, but uh, if ever we ought to be able to agree that greet one another with a holy kiss is not necessarily meant to be interpreted literally in every setting. But that doesn't mean it can't be God's word. It can be God's word if I understand the principle behind that statement. In the ancient world, people didn't understand viruses and uh, well, heck, we kiss until recently, even understanding viruses, but it wasn't a sexually charged thing. It was a peck on the cheek. Um, it's what those of you old enough to remember Yasser Arafat in uh, the PLO always did whenever he greeted some head of state and kissed him on both cheeks, men and women. Well, I think he did it mostly with men, um, but it wasn't a sexual thing. It was, it was a way of greeting someone who was a close friend to say, I care deeply about you. Well, then figure out in another culture what that looks like. For some people, it's a hug. For some people, you know, coronavirus notwithstanding, used to be uh, a hearty handshake. Um, in some parts of the world, I was in a Spanish church, as in, in Spain, uh, just four years ago, and women of all ages kissed me on the cheek because that's what they still do, but it's not a sexual thing. Um, so to say something somehow comes from God does not mean I interpret everything literally. And even our beginning students don't always understand that, so it's it's not a surprise that, that there is that widespread misconception, but, but I think we have to distinguish those. Everything has to be interpreted in terms of what did the writer mean in his time and place? But if there is something that's a principle that can be seen as timelessly true, then certainly it can be thought of as God's word. Can you speak directly to like that example I used about women should be saved in childbirth? Because yeah. it's not that Paul said a woman's primary job should be giving birth and raising children. It's that he said salvation is sort of tied to a woman giving birth in child, giving yeah, birth it, to children. It's, it's actually, a, it's a very interesting verse and it comes right after, uh, or a couple verses after the one that... Uh, we looked at in First Timothy earlier. Um, I mentioned the, the false teaching that was afoot at Ephesus, and we actually know what some of that false teaching involved from First uh, Peter, First uh, Peter, sorry, First Timothy, chapter four, verse three, where uh, Paul says that these people, deceiving spirits, he calls them, forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, dot, dot, dot. But somebody was going around saying, marriage is wrong. Celibacy is the spiritual goal. Well, in that kind of a context, Paul has got to say, um, that's gonna end the human race pretty quickly if that's generalized. And yes, um, women have a, a particular role there. But now I go back to chapter 2, verse 15, and it says, women, but my footnote says in the Greek, it's simply she, 
she will be saved to childbearing if they, and then it's a switch to the plural, continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. My take is that the she is generic for women as a gender. If people were going around saying women do not marry and therefore do not have kids, Paul is saying, no, woman as a generic singular, we can't do this if you quit having kids altogether. Your role, the salvation of the gender, as it were, is through childbirth. But now, what applies to each woman individually? A lot of them aren't going to have children. Others may not even marry. If they, now everyone individually is being included, continue in faith, in love. Oh, well, that's the spiritual stuff that Paul always talks about. So I, I don't think he's contradicting himself. Okay, thank you. No, I don't think Paul was even thinking in terms of a succeeding generation. He thought things were going to wrap up like soon. He thought they might, but he never came out and, and said he knew for sure that they would, and he, he kept his bets open. <laughs> the way you described that, it sounded um, almost like he was acknowledging some of the feminine, divine, ancient practice there, that, that women have this ability, and it's essential to humanity continuing but it, he wasn't commanding it as each individual woman must do this. I would but agree. a recognition of the beauty of this capability that they have. It's a good way of putting it. And there was a story about Paul and a female disciple called Thecla. Thecla's great claim to um, honor was that she abjured um, a husband and childbearing to go traveling with Paul. There's a, a second century apocryphal book that's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And uh, depending on the mood you're in, it's, it's either sort of funny or sort of sad to read it, um, in which uh, a movement that may well have had first century origins, but it really took off in the second and third century. And it's the very movement that eventually led to uh, Catholics believing that uh, the priesthood and monks and nuns and various holy orders were to be reserved for celibate people. There were a bunch of, of made-up stories in the second and third century uh, about people who uh, decided they were going to live a single lifestyle, and they attributed this to Paul. Um, and there are places, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it appears he's a, a widower, and he says, I, I wish that all people were like myself. But then he goes on to say, but not everyone has this gift. And so he, he doesn't try to make that, but... Uh, 100, 200 years later, people did pick up on that one strand of Paul's thought and uh, kind of ran him up with it. Okay, Phil, let's uh, move on to you. Are you with us, Phil? I, I see him. To... Yeah, man, I'm here. There you um, are. Thanks, Craig. I've enjoyed that. My question was pretty open-ended, and I just um, I was interested in in with your your thoughts on gender. If you would just comment on um, fem- feminism in this day and age. And I'm, I want to leave it deliberately open-ended like that. Yeah. Which one of a thousand varieties? <laughs> well, that's true. I'm, I'm just really interested in your thoughts. So please take it in whichever way you'd like to go. And where in Australia are you from? I grew up in Adelaide. Oh, that is such a beautiful city. I, 
got a chance to visit there in 2000 and oh, uh, yeah. been back to Australia five more times and never been back to Adelaide. So that's one of the, the sorrows of my life. <laughs> comment on feminism any way you want uh, is kind of like comment on politics in any way that you want. Um, <laughs> I, I can sharpen it a little bit. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> um, in regards to, say, uh, modern-day feminism compared to what um, sort of the biblical approach would be. So secular versus biblical. Um, compare and contrast, perhaps. Yeah. Well, the ideal, the goal, and, and none of us should claim to measure up very well but we live in an age, and in this country, a lot of it uh, comes from our own constitution and our Declaration of Independence, uh, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But those words weren't taken from Scripture, and Scripture was written and faithfully followed for centuries when monarchies were the major form of government. Uh, so I read the Bible as saying the, the key task of somebody who's a Jesus follower is not to be all about me, not to be all about my rights, not to be about my privileges, but to be about how can I serve others? How can I use however I've been gifted or talented or trained or called um, in some small way to further the, the values that Jesus tried to promote. Um, and he made the ultimate sacrifice by laying down his life when he didn't have to. Um, and countless people have been martyrs in, uh, in centuries since. So I think one of the things that, that, What's the opposite of feminism? Masculinism. Um, that that both sides in the debate uh, so often fail to take into account uh, is that the fight for rights is basically a secular fight. The fight for the opportunity to serve, which can also be a fight, but but that's what the Christian should be be striving for. What would Jesus have said about the, the, the civil rights movement in, in the 60s? I think he would have been in favor of it so long as it never lost sight of the biggest thing that people need to be liberated from, and that is their, their own sinfulness and their own alienation and estrangement from God. I think you would have said Martin Luther King got it right most of the time. I think you would have said Malcolm X didn't. So in, as far as our time goes and wanting to honor your time and the time of everybody else here, we have about 20 minutes left and another major topic that I'm sure most of the questions are geared toward. I, I would, man, I'd love to hear your thoughts on unconscious bias. I think a lot of us would too regarding mm -hmm. Uh, male and female and all that. And maybe, maybe, maybe this can even move into the next topic at hand, which is uh, same-sex marriage and same-sex acts. But 
let's do that. Let's transition with unconscious bias. I'm just, I am curious as, as are others in this circle, uh, how that, how that factors into how we, how we interpret the text, how we live our lives in the 21st century when it comes to black lives matter, feminism and sexuality. And then let's just, and then we'll just move straight into same sex because that's going to take the rest of our time for sure. <laughs> no, no question that it's a factor. And uh, when something is unconscious, the only way to analyze it is to ask, how can I make it conscious? Mm. Um, and the only way I know how to make uh, an unconscious bias conscious is to interact with people who think very differently than I do. That's one of the reasons I love a, a venue like this. Um, I came to adolescence at a very unique time in American history. Um, I turned 13 in, uh, well, I guess adolescence and teenage dumb isn't exactly the same, but I became a teenager in 1968, which uh, now the history books uh remember it because it was the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Um, And uh, there were riots in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention and there were riots in Germany by the Red Guard. Um, And and it was a time of a lot of turmoil. I grew up in a segregated neighborhood. Uh, There were only white people. Uh, my dad was a high school Spanish teacher, so we had a lot of Hispanic friends, and I honestly grew up thinking Hispanic was just a sort of darker form of white, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I really realized how poorly treated many of them are, but my junior year in high school, it wasn't until I was uh, at a three-year high school that uh, I even had black friends and In those days, black was the word. You had to use black. And uh, there were riots in our football stadium on a Friday night. Outside on a Saturday, they spilled over into school on Monday and Tuesday in Illinois, where I grew up. And uh, I was walking in the halls when my best friend's brother, uh, right in front of me, as a, a group of black students came running down the hall at us and all we could do was squeeze up against a locker um, to try to avoid them and my friend got an elbow smashed at him and his jaw broken and uh, for six weeks he had to have a liquid diet um, and suck it through a straw that was my first traumatic exposure to black people I didn't just have an unconscious bias, I had a very conscious bias. And then once I tried to overcome that some, uh, the most terrifying thing could be for me to be walking in a a mixed race neighborhood in the evening and see a large black man in the dark coming toward me. I just automatically feared the worst. Today, I have large black men who are some of my very best friends and some of them are pastors in the city and I have taught at the Potter's House, uh, which has several thousand black people in it, and uh, things are a whole lot different. But uh, did I have unconscious and conscious bias that I had to overcome? Yeah, and and the only way I was able to overcome it was to meet wonderful black people and 
and black people who challenged me and not all black people favor Black Lives Matter, but a lot of them do. And I heard both sides coming from them. Um, so yeah, I just think we have to get to know people that are very different from us and take their perspectives at, to heart. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Thank you for that. So moving on to the, the third portion of this, if you will, uh, would be uh, everything from same-sex sexuality, marriage, and so forth. So Rob, Rob had mentioned, Rob, I'm going to send Rob the Elder to differentiate here, uh, <laughs> that there, uh, you know, there, there was no gay marriage in the first century, which I, I, from what I understand, that is correct. And I just want to, I, I don't, would you agree with that just to start off? There were long-term, uh, lifelong, same-sex committed relationships. They may not have had a marriage ceremony attached to them, okay. but uh, one of the, the myths that is frequently popularized today is that, oh yeah, things were just different back then. People didn't know about orientation. That's absolutely wrong. We have the documents that talk about it. Yeah, they probably didn't have anything like a formal marriage ceremony, but, but even, remember yeah. that the word lesbian comes from the Greek island of Lesbos because it was practiced a lot there. So yeah, it did happen. People knew about it. Right. So, but even how we understand marriage ceremonies today in the U.S. very different from, sure. uh, yeah, from the ancient Near East. Sure. Okay, so uh, let's just assume, and you know, and, and I'm, I'm okay with this, that Jesus, first century rabbi, and Paul, uh, they had a very traditional view within Judaism about, a man, you know, a man and a woman, and that's, that's what it would have meant back then, um, biblically. Does, does this change the speculative argument today moving forward uh, you know, and, and you see that graph that you had put in there with slavery and, right. you know, uh, you know, feminism and how we just talked about modern feminism today. Uh, does that factor into this at all based on, based, based on just progressing? I don't, I don't even want to even use the word progressive because it kind of is a loaded term, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? Well, yeah. I mean, back when everybody was debating, uh, what the Supreme Court was going to do or should do, uh, my conviction was that there should be no civil rights withheld from people based on sexual orientation. And if in a pluralistic society and in uh, a culture in which uh, we claim to guarantee uh, the rights of minorities, uh, I was not opposed despite the gasps from some of my conservative friends to having a, a civil or legal uh, same-sex marriage in the U.S. That's a different issue, in my opinion, than whether a Christian, or at least a Christian who claims that scripture is some kind of a, a significant authority for them, should practice same-sex sexuality or get married or officiate at a marriage. I think those are two issues that need to be kept separate. So Hank, let's start with you. And then I think Jeff, you were, or so, who was, well, let's start with Hank. Well, if you go to the, the essence of the, of, of the Christianity, God is defined. This goes to Thomas Aquinas and, and beyond that. God is defined as the lack of differences, a kind of the, uh, the, the lack of separation. 
So God would be defined as gay and transgender. The fact that that gay and transgender have gotten to be kind of a, seen as a kind of a, a negative space in the Bible is simply because large parts of the Bible are, are bigoted, basically. That's one way to interpret things. And certainly, if you start with the definition of God that you gave, then you're going to come out in a very different place. Uh, that is not anything like the, the God of Scripture. It's not anything like the God of Jewish or Christian or Islamic tradition. And so, yeah, if you start with a very different picture of God, it will lead you in, into a different place. I can find something in the, in the Catholic Church that actually says that very specifically. And it goes to Thomas Aquinas. God is the lack of differences. It is right-centered in the church doctrine. You can find a lot of things in a lot of church doctrine that don't have origins in the Bible. Very true. Yeah. But that's true. It's not directly tied to the Bible, but it is tied to Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, you you were going to follow up with that. Yeah, I wanted to follow up just in that, kind of going back to my original question, it feels, and please understand, I fully respect you, um, it feels a little bit like the hermeneutic filter has changed now from, well, these passages um, in Paul and these passages in the Mosaic Law, we're going to interpret literally, whereas other passages were going to um, more play with the culture, I guess, if I could say it that way. And, and you have to allow for both options to be possibilities in every passage. Um, there are good, smart, thoughtful, committed Christian scholars who take the uh, passages in Paul uh, on homosexual relationships and they interpret them in light of very cultural specific backgrounds as well. Um, I have read them, I have studied them at some length, just as I have with the the passages on gender, passages on slavery, and we could add other topics into this. And and the only way I know how to to come at that question is to say, I can't just look at two issues that seem to have superficial parallels and assume that everything's going to be the same in both of them. Maybe they will be, maybe they won't. The, the only way I can come at it is to give it some serious study, to look at what people are saying on different sides of the issue, um, and see who convinces me the most and why. And uh, I don't have a story to tell you about a mob of gay people running at me down the hallway, but I can tell you that uh, I've had very close friends, uh, including a man who was an usher uh, at our wedding uh, years ago, who have come out of the closet. And uh, I, I don't say what I say glibly. I, I wish I could, with intellectual honesty, uh, come out at a different point at times. And maybe one day, if I live long enough, I will. But uh, I do the best I can with what I have, and then listen to you, and See if I can learn something from you. 
I think it takes a lot of twisting and leading to argue that the epistles don't oppose homosexuality. It is, I, I wouldn't put it as perhaps uh, caustically as that, but it, it is harder than it is for some other issues. And that's one of the reasons why right now I land where I do. But again, uh, as I've told students over the years, uh, if I'm still living, find me in 10 years and ask me what I think then. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think so many of us too, I, mean, I know so many of your backstories and y'all know mine as well, to know that in the past decade, two decades, three decades plus, uh, we've, you know, we've all changed in our views and and a lot of it is is hard work. I mean, I will say, I mean, Dr. Blomer, you've you probably studied this way more than any of us here. Um, I'm curious if there's any other comments on on that particular topic, even just the wor- the wording that Paul uses. Clearly, Jesus doesn't talk about it. Uh, it's, it's assumed he takes a traditional role, but uh, Paul Paul clearly does talk about it. So, does anybody want to talk about Romans chapter one or even the well, word hope? Randy, you've been silent. Let's go. Let's go with Randy. That's not like me, so be grateful. <laughs> um, Craig, I'm curious. He, uh, for example, when Christ talked about divorce, he said, because of your sin, Moses gave you the possibility of divorce. Yeah. And I tend to read that as not necessarily you, an individual, your particular sin, but because of who we are as fallen people, etc., we have this out because we're, we're flawed. And I wonder if there's a sense in which you might see, uh, even if you see homosexuality as a sin, you might see it as, well, it's a screwed up humanity. We are like this. There are flaws. Therefore, there are people who uh, have homosexual orientation. That's just the reality. And the responsibility they have is to live their lives of integrity within that framework. Uh, so it's not sin like yeah. a person, it's more social. I'll, I'll tell you two stories real quickly. Um, there was a, a good friend of ours and, and a woman that my wife mentored who probably set the record for uh, total number of men she had before she was married, maybe trying to break some record for promiscuity. And remember one time when, when uh, our pastor said, as, as she had went off and had a fling with her boss for the weekend and then ran away to Arizona to hide in, in her shame. And, and our pastor just said to Fred, just don't lose her. Don't give up on her. Nobody in the world cares about her. Just, just keep loving her. And she did. And she came back and she was sorry. And, and she got better. Um, and, um, Getting better for her was not having an affair for a half a year instead of every weekend. Um, Shift to sexual orientation and a woman who taught for us for several years at the seminary, uh, Janelle Holman has probably written the book uh, in evangelical Christian circles on female same-sex attraction and that's the title of it. And she was uh, and is a Christian counselor as well. And she will tell you um, with some women, if she can get two women who come to her for counseling, not in a Christian context, um, to live uh, committed, loving 
life with each other rather than the promiscuous relationships that they had had before, she sees that as a significant step on a trajectory of healing. Um, and not because she thinks it's right or good, but it's it's the lesser of of evils to use that ethical expression. Um, so yeah, Jeff, I can I can see that in some situations we might have to say that. Was it Jeff? No, who was it? Randy. Sorry, Randy. Randy. So then, in this case, is it the? It's not the orientation. Uh, you know, we all have different orientation, how we, you know, how we, who we are, right? I mean, and that, that can change as well. But then is it, in this case, the, the actual physical act? Right. Is that, yeah? Okay. Here's, here's something. Um, I mean, I'm so close to retirement that if this speeds it up, what the heck. Um, how many people are listening on Facebook? I don't know. <laughs> Um, well, I've set it to classes, and they can report it to whoever they want. Um, you don't need another human being to experience sexual climax. You don't have to experience sexual climax to have a wonderful, intimate relationship with another person of any gender. Ours is a weird world in which we have equated the two in ways that few other societies before us have. And we might just be the first generation in human history that has turned sex into a right rather than a privilege. And once we do that, we've lost the whole game. There's my controversial statement at the end. <laughs> our identities go far beyond our sexuality. That is, that's a fundamental statement that people of every religion and no religion have typically known. But somehow, my peers, my fellow baby boomers, the ones who became hippies, um, started the sexual revolution. And in one generation, we have lost sight of that fundamental human truth that we are far more than our sexual identities in many circles. Well, that, that's very true. Very true, actually. Uh, but you go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, I think we, were they better than us? Or maybe they were worse than us. <laughs> that's attaching morality. But what do you think? Yeah, who knows? Um, we're told so little. And, and one of the things, uh, whoever made the comment about uh, the problem at Sodom and Gomorrah being their arrogance and their wealth. Yeah, we've got we've got a paragraph or two in Genesis, and we've got a passing comment in Ezekiel. We know so little; it's almost impossible to make that kind of a comparison. Yeah, ours is hardly the most debauched society in the history of the world. Romans, if they had a baby girl, more often than not, put them out to be exposed and committed infanticide because men were, boys were so much more desirable. Not everybody, but a, a horrifying number. So other, other generations have, have been screwed up too, and we've got our own screw-ups, and if that sounds like an intended double meaning, I guess it was. <laughs> this, is, uh, this has been thought-provoking, and I'm hoping that everybody here has not only learned a lot, but uh, you know, you've been stretched in your agreements and your disagreements, and... I think this is a fascinating topic. Thanks for your time, Craig. 
And you can uh, tear it all to shreds next week, and I won't be around to defend myself. <laughs> so have fun. <laughs> oh well, we won't. We well, we won't shred you. Um, so how <laughs> thank, you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I thank you for your time. And I, I always say this to people, and I I told I told Janelle this this week. So I was a straight A student all the way through you know, middle school, high school, college, oh. masters, <laughs> and then I get to your class. And you gave me a B. It was a B plus. It was a B plus on one of my papers. Um, and I've held I've held on to that paper. I think I've shared that with you before. Yeah. But I, but I looked back at that paper recently, and I said, you know what? It's really not a good paper. So <laughs> thank you for giving me a B plus. Eighteen years later. <laughs> well, I don't remember any of the contents. You know, it, it was on, uh, I think it was on Luke's gospel and it was about, it was on uh, females and the outcasts and the poor, a lot of the stuff that was foundational and has stayed with me throughout the years. So thank you. Thank you for all but that. I, I'm one of these people. I still think the B is a good grade. A means excellent and B means good. <laughs> I, I got to say, I, I didn't study as hard for any other class. Maybe Dr. Hess, when you were, you battled it out for, but you know, I won't, I won't give you names, but other professors, I didn't really study that hard. <laughs> Uh, Michael Jordan got cut by one of his coaches, too. <laughs> yeah, and it made him better. Made him yep. better. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. Bye, everybody. Bye. Oh, Thanks for it. coming, Craig. Good night. You're welcome. God Good bless. Night, everyone. Thank you. Hey, peace. Bye. Good night. Have fun. Good night. night. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation with Craig Blomberg. If you would like to know more about us, you can find us at brewtheology.org, Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. If you're interested in starting your own chapter, please reach out and let us know. And if you have any other thoughts or questions, we'd love to talk to you. Thank you. Cheers.